Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to episode 127 of the Nerdfest podcast. This week's nerds are... John Farber, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, Dan Watkins, and I'm Hazel Chandler. On today's show, we're talking about what we've been enjoying and reading recently, including The Last of Us, The Fablemans, Tar, Terry Pratchett biography, A Life with Footnotes, Slow Horses, and not to be confused with The Last of Us, This Is Us. We'll get to that. So let's start the show. We're coming to you this week live from the, the Orangery. Or the Orangery? Oh, <laughs> we've been upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is Andy and I's new house and we've got an Orangery. With oranges? <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. two very, very small orange plants, but that will grow... Like your love. One's already dying, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things dropped off. <laughs> As in life. <laughs> very nice. It's very posh. Got a big sunroof. It's all uh, light and bright and airy. Expensive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're very happy. If things can stop breaking. And presumably everyone who's listening is welcome to pop round whenever. Mm-hmm. Well, that can be our special treat. Oh, it could. I don't want to preempt the end of the show, but maybe if somebody leaves a review, they could visit the orangery. Yeah, that would. Yeah, be, yeah absolutely. The look of terror of some <laughs> weirdo internet freak. Not that that's our entire audience. Yeah, you're implying that would be worse than the people in this room. Yeah, yeah, you could sit on the same chair that John's sitting on right now. Yeah, so many rewards to be had. Hello, um, I listen to your show on the radio. And how do you find our address? Lots of searching. <laughs> but I did it. <laughs> I searched Orangery and Newcastle and the surprise of you. <laughs> God. <laughs> we should move. <laughs> you had an exciting week, didn't you? Me? So you got to see somebody get fed. I did, yes. Somebody fed Phil in Glasgow earlier this week. Thank goodness I was worried. Nobody feeds him that much, apparently. Really? Did he, did he confess to you? To me and a couple of thousand other people in the mm. Theatre Royal. Yes, Phil Rosenthal of Somebody Feed Phil is doing a UK and Ireland tour at the moment, uh, going around promoting his Netflix show and the accompanying book. And we went to see him on the first night of the tour in Glasgow. He's coming to the city of Newcastle Around the time you're listening to this, mm-hmm. in fact. In fact, the very day this podcast is released, Hazel and Andy and Louise will be fed to Phil. I believe that's how it works. <laughs> it is, yes. Um, I mean, with, with us, he was promoting the book, which is called Somebody Feed Phil the Book. So the show does consist of Phil being fed a book for an hour and 20 minutes. Is it a large hardback? It is. Good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Needs the roughage. Yes, for anyone who hasn't been following, John hates Phil. For no other reason than he's a lovely man. Exactly, yeah. I can't deny that. You think that there is something else to his niceness? I don't believe anybody can be that nice and lovely without some underlying 
evilness. So it's it's a bit like one of those Star Trek episodes where they land on the planet and everything's lovely. And yeah. You just know there's going to be some deep dark secret. Like, like that episode where, their children where or... Wesley Crusher falls in a flower bed and gets sentenced to death. Yeah. Yeah, but that was an annoying episode because they didn't carry out the sentence. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but having seen Phil in person, I think he genuinely is just a really lovely nice mm-hmm. kind of person. Amy got a photo up with him afterwards. He gave your wife a hug. He did give her a hug. Yeah. And they're best friends now, she says. Yeah. And <laughs> after the hug, did your wife notice that her purse no, or phone were missing? He did not pickpocket her. He has Netflix money. He doesn't need to. He's getting Raymond residuals mm-hmm. every day. <laughs> Let's not entertain this notion that John is worried that Phil isn't really a nice guy. I guarantee that if it came out that he was actually secretly a wrong and John would actually soften his stance and <laughs> understand him a lot better. I once offered to buy Charlie Booker a pint and he said, no need, I've got Netflix money. Mm. <laughs> did he buy you a pint? I think he did actually, yeah. Ah. Mm. Was that enough to make you go away from him? I think that was. Yeah. <laughs> nice work, Charlie. Cheap at half the price. He's actually lovely. Not lovely as Phil. Just lovely enough for me to think that, you know, there's probably some evil there too. And Charlie Booker, there definitely is. You just think there's evil in everyone. Mm-hmm. And what does that say about you? Let's turn this into a therapy session. <laughs> and maybe I'm like Natasha Leon in Poker Face, but I just know if someone is evil, even if nobody else can see it. But you just assume everyone is. I mean, most people are a little evil. Dan is like the nicest person on the planet, but I'm guessing occasionally he just... <laughs> Bites people. Bites a guinea- <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, bites a guinea pig's head off. <laughs> don't know if that's better or worse than biting people. Is this a uh, keep your friends close, keep your enemies yeah. closer situation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, you know where we stand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, other recommendations. What have we been enjoying or reading recently that we would like to tell the pod world about? Reading. I oh, know, books and stuff. Oh. Yeah. Literature. Remember that, old okay. style. It's because I'm on this week. <laughs> oh, of course. The only man whose concentration span hasn't been destroyed by an iPhone. I can yeah. still read a full book. Yeah. Would you like to kick us off, Dan, without biting us this time? Okay, I'll try. I mean, if you want to. Bite you or kick you off. <laughs> don't even know what that means. <laughs> Today, I've got a double recommendation. There is a film and a book but they've got quite a few things in common, so I've combined them into one mega recommendation. Mm. The film is The Fablemans, Steven Spielberg's almost autobiographical movie about a young boy in the 50s who fell in love with movies and grew up to be one of the world's great storytellers. The book is A Life with Footnotes, the official biography of Terry Pratchett, written by his longtime PA Rob Wilkins, and that's about a young boy in the 50s who fell in love with books and grew up to be one of the world's great storytellers. Mm. The Fablemans technically isn't about Steven Spielberg. It's about Sammy Fableman, a fictionalised version of Steven Spielberg and his family. His mum, played by Michelle Williams, his dad, played by an excellent Paul Dano, three younger sisters and other relatives who drop in and out over the 15 years or so in which the story takes place. It's a two and a half hour film and it focuses more on character than plot, but several big themes from lots of Spielberg movies start to appear. Parental issues inspiration, sibling bonds are all in this film. But where it really came alive for me is when Sammy starts making his own movies. The film that lights the spark for him is The Greatest Show on Earth, much like reading The Wind in the Willows lit the spark for reading for young Terry Pratchett. 
Soon, Sammy's recruiting his family and his friends to star in his homemade movies, and his passion for making them is kind of mirrored by how Spielberg, who's in his mid-70s now, recreates these times in his young life for the Fablemans. Teenage Pratchett, meanwhile, was attending sci-fi conventions, reading every story he could, but it wasn't a straight line for him to be a best-selling novelist. The book's compiled from notes that he made towards an autobiography before his death in 2015, as well as anecdotes from those who knew him, several of which are marked as too good to check if they're true or not. (laughs) But it was only after three Discworld books had been released and sold well that he gave up his regular job to be a full-time writer. Both the film and the book have got very strong emotional moments. Sammy Fableman's family deal with grief, they struggle with their relationships to each other. Sammy deals with bullying and tries to balance family and art. But there's lightness too, from a pet monkey that his mum adopts, to a brief but brilliant appearance from Judd Hirsch, who was nominated for an Oscar for basically one scene in the movie. (laughs) Likewise, A Life with Footnotes doesn't shy away from the devastating details of Pratchett's Alzheimer's diagnosis. Rob Wilkins was there with Terry when he got his diagnosis, and it recreates this part of his life in great detail. Terry's reaction to the news of that diagnosis broke my heart reading it, and I know lots of readers will have shed tears when the description of him actually passing away from complications of the disease comes up. But there's lightness in the book as well, like when he wins a Carnegie medal for children's literature, only to have Rob swap the medal with a chocolate coin of the same size and eats it during the ceremony. (laughs) Both the book and the film aren't afraid to look more harshly on their subjects either. The Spielberg's mum was clearly a very complicated person. She doesn't always come across very sympathetically. Sometimes it's the total opposite, but I think that's the point. Likewise, Pratchett was known as someone who didn't suffer fools. And Rob includes multiple incidents of him being unhappy at various things. Sometimes it comes across quite relatable. Sometimes it crosses the line into quite rude and unpleasant. But there are just as many instances of friendship and charity as well. So it's left to the reader to decide what to make of the man rather than the author. And then I've got two last things to compare the two. First is the final shot of the Fablemans, which you might have already heard about as one of the all-time best final shots, certainly of any Spielberg film. And it really is. It's punch the air brilliant, this last shot. I don't want to spoil it for you, but I would give Spielberg the Best Director Oscar just for that one shot. And finally, finally, this quote from Terry Pratchett. No one is finally dead until the ripples they cause in the world fade away. The span of someone's life is only the core of their actual existence. And his books, like Spielberg's films are ripples that will stay with us for a really, really long time. So those are my joint recommendations. Mm. A book and a film, but with quite a lot in common. Very lovely. I particularly enjoyed the stuff where he was being a young filmmaker yeah. and recreating, trying to do Hollywood movies on zero budget. Yeah, and things. That definitely was, that the was best fun. parts. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's making a war movie at one point. You can see he wants it to be Saving Private Ryan, but he's working with people who he's in the scouts with who are just there for the day and they give it a go and it comes across really well in the Fablemans but I bet the actual real ones <laughs> yeah. um, probably weren't at that level yeah I would like to see those that would be fun how true do you think it was and also why is it a fictionalized version is that because it allows him to say things he perhaps couldn't say about his own mother I think so there's been a lot of talk that he's waited until now to make it because his parents generation of now all passed away I've seen it described as auto-fictional, almost like adapting a book. He's just adapting his life. 
mm. to a different medium. I think it's as close to a memoir or something like that that we're ever going to get from Spielberg. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever true enough to be self-indulgent, mm-hmm. but I think there's lots and lots of things that are portrayed in enough detail that they can't not be true. Like his experiences in high school and things like mm. that. The family stuff with the uncle is all true, from what I understand. Okay. Mm. Listening to Michelle Williams talk about the, her role playing Spielberg's mother, she said that she always thought that she was playing his mother, mm-hmm. not a version of her, but uh, his mother, and they've had long conversations about how to do that in the right way. And I guess it's it's difficult because this is a chance for Spielberg to spend time with people that he hasn't spent time with, with mm-hmm. in, in years. and how do you get that across in the right way where you are being very open and very vulnerable to opinions being thrown on your family? And it seems to me like what he wanted to do was create something very genuine, but also leave just that little bit of wiggle room yeah. for fictionalization. Just puts him at a remove. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like when you have a problem with something and you want to talk about it, but you phrase it like, I've got a friend who... Yeah. yeah. Everyone knows it's about you, but it helps for you to say that it's about someone else. And Spielberg's talked about the effect that his parents' divorce has had on him. Like, E.T. is about his parents' divorce, really. Yeah. About an alien. <laughs> <laughs> his mother cheating on his dad with an alien. That, that's how I remember it, yeah. It's close encounters. <laughs> oh. um, I had a point. It's long gone. <laughs> The scene where Sammy Fableman goes swimming and there's a giant shark was clearly very influential. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the point was that he's <laughs> never been afraid to um, show... Oh, no, 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 gone again. Sorry. <laughs> he's never been afraid to use real influences from his own life in Dig his films. Dig into real emotion and um, kind of show that people aren't perfect. They make decisions mm-hmm. that have an impact on other people that maybe they didn't think through. That time his mum... Cloned a pet raptor. Yeah. <laughs> just because she could didn't mean yes. she had to. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Oh, I like how you tied them both together as well. Yeah. Well, it was only after watching the Fablemans and thinking about it for a night. It's like this is very similar, mm-hmm. and I couldn't decide which of the two to recommend. And it turned out that they had quite a lot in common. You know, just hearing about how great creative minds become that. And it's like a theme when you get to a certain age that you start kind of reflecting on things and maybe trying to find a thread. And there's this film and then there's Empire of Light, which which Andy, you saw recently, Sam Mendes' film. Uh, He's obviously changed quite a lot in that one, but he was talking about how the pandemic gave him the time to really properly reflect. And if the pandemic hadn't happened, he probably wouldn't have created such a personalised story. It's always good when a storyteller is passionate about their subject and they're hardly going to be more passionate about anything but their own life. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a good thing. I did see Empire of Light. I'm excited to see The Fablemans. I hope it's better than Empire of Light. (laughs) There's Babylon as well, isn't there, which is also another... Oh, I'm going to relish, relish not watching that film. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently it starts with elephant diarrhea and it's all downhill from there. Yeah. See, I, I've heard about that a few times and I just keep thinking, I hope the elephant was all right. Yeah. This fictional elephant from 100 years ago, I hope it was all right. <laughs> Which one's best? Well, one is a book and one is a film. <laughs> it sort of depends on your interests. I think uh, Pratchett's biography, if you've never read any of his novels, might be a little harder to connect to. I don't think you need to have seen any of Spielberg's films to watch The Fablemans and get something out of it. If you were going to pick one, 
go for the Fablemans. But if you've ever read or enjoyed any Terry Pratchett stuff, getting the biography, you start to see lots of inspiration for the other things you've enjoyed, both in films and books. Fablemans is two and a half hours. Might take you longer than that to read a full book. Mm -hmm. So depends how much time you've got. It's always odd. And like when John recommends something, he quite often says, oh, well, it's only like half an hour. And you go, well, if the thing's good, I want it to be long. Yeah. If the thing's bad, I want it to be short. So being short isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Brevity is the something of whatever. Or... Soul of wit. Yeah, yeah, that. But that's not what Hazel was sniggering at. <laughs> We've got a shelf in my office full of signed first edition Terry Pratchett books. Did she just take this enormous stack of books to one side again? No, had to go through no, all of them? Louise was a massive fan when she was younger. Every time a new book came out, she went to the book signing thing and got it signed. Which was sometimes two or three times a year. Mm-hmm. He treated writing as a full-time job. It was his day job. You know, rather than being a creative, yeah. I'll just think of a couple of words and I'll see when the inspiration hits me. He had a daily target of number of words for the next book. We'll be working on multiple books at the same time. And if he thought of a good passage or an idea, it would go in something called The Pit. And, you know, in 10 books' time, he'd remember it and think, that would actually work really well here, and it would go back in. So it didn't matter whether he was writing the next book, he was always writing 3,000 words a day, every day. Because there's a few prolific writers who seem to do that. Stephen King, I think, does mm-hmm. the same. Or all of these prolific writers, the ones who just sit down and write, and they don't self-edit too much, and... A lot of people might spend a year just thinking about what they'll put in a book Mm -hmm. and then finally sit down and write it. From the way Rob Wilkins described it, it sounded like that part of the process just happened in his head and he would wake up in the morning and be able to type it or dictate it towards the end of his life as the Alzheimer's was getting worse. There was voice recognition software that was used to try and translate what he had in his head onto a computer but it seemed like that sitting around looking for inspiration, it just seemed to happen. Mm. A little bit like, again, Spielberg having these years where he brings out Jurassic Park and Schindler's List within six months of each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there a technique or something to do that? Could someone send it to Mr. Martin and say... (laughs) (laughs) Dear George. He's doing his best. (laughs) That book's never coming out. He's not even started it. You'd think you'd just have watched the end of the series and written it all down, yeah. wouldn't you? <laughs> Imagine if it comes out that like the last third is literally just the transcription <laughs> of the TV show. Interior, Winterfell, day. <laughs> well, the majority of it would be black text on a dark grey page and you wouldn't be able to read it, would you? <laughs> just very, very dark. <laughs> the last chapter is literally, will this do? <laughs> Yeah, I've had enough. <laughs> so, Dan, um, for the Fablemans, how many fables out of ten, man? Uh, <laughs> eight fables out of ten, man, for the Fablemans. And the same for A Life with Footnotes. Do you know what really puts me off the film? Is it because it looks nice? No, it's the title. It's just the name of the mm. family is just so on the nose. He's a fable man. He's a Spielberg. <laughs> he tells Spiels, doesn't he? <laughs> just feels a bit on the nose. Who's next? I can go next. No, this, that's a resounding... <laughs> we a don't resounding that. Take, take it away, maestro. No tar. Oh. Oh, well. Avatar? That's my one joke I need to delete now. <laughs> I this. Yeah, I'm going to recommend tar. 
which is, is not about... <laughs> it's not really. I mean, have you not read the books about smoking? Any of the recent research? You should not be recommended tar. Fair enough, right. I'll change my recommendation to a Kate Blanchett film. Okay. Um, so, tar. Until I saw the film, I never knew uh, the correct pronunciation of the name. It's spelled T-A-R, but there's an accent over the A, and I didn't know if it was just tar or if it was dare or tar. <laughs> I digress once again. So what is it? Thank you for getting me back on track. It's a film. Uh, it's, it's Tar. It's a, a drama set in the world of classical music. Uh, still out in cinemas at the moment. It will probably be available to rent at home quite soon if you can't be asked to go outdoors. Kate Blanchett stars as the titular Lydia Tarr, uh, a genius composer and conductor who leads the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. The film shows her preparing for a performance of Mahler's Fifth Symphony. It will be the jewel in the crown of her illustrious career, but sins from her past threaten to ruin her plans and reputation. The first and most obvious thing to say about the film is that Kate Blanchett is absolutely incredible. She gives a commanding performance and completely transforms into this a, character. a towering performance. Oh, oh. The, the backup <laughs> joke I had. <laughs> if, it, if, if, if it was a bad performance, she'd have been tarred and feathered. <laughs> a lucky escape for her. <laughs> Tarific. So Kate Blanchett was really good. <laughs> At any point, do you see do a driveway and then bugger off before I finished it properly? <laughs> Um, yeah, in the post credit scene. Stick around for that. <laughs> Quite easy, because the credits are at the start. It's, yes. It's all the post credit scene. Uh, but it's a really good performance. <laughs> the character's someone who has supreme ability and is very, very aware of it. Mm. And the performance is, is wonderful, inspires a kind of real depth of feeling and made me wrestle with both contempt and admiration for her at the same time. So it's a totally convincing portrayal of a, a luminous but dangerous character. And the film as a whole succeeds in prompting contradictory feelings um, and interpretations. People will and do disagree over what it's really about. Many have said that it's about the supposed phenomenon of cancel culture. I see it very differently. It does touch on the topic of how to judge art independently of one's opinion of the artist, and briefly the idea of an accusation being as good as a conviction in the court of public opinion. But I think the central theme is obviously about the very opposite about the sense of superiority and entitlement that can come from talent, success and adulation. That corrosive idea that producing admirable works excuses wrong behaviour. This is what ultimately proves to be the title character's undoing. So see it and decide for yourself. It's not just about Blanchett's performance, of course. I love the way the film was shot. It's got lots of steady cameras, deliberate movements, carefully composed frames. It's quite subtle, usually opting to show or imply rather than explicitly telling the whole story. The opening scene in particular, in which we see an interview with Tar, is an understated masterpiece in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the film's full of tension and drama, and even though it's long, at 2 hours and 38 minutes, it doesn't drag at all. The only small drawback uh, that I'll point to, there's a significant turn of events, uh, seems to happen quite suddenly. It's not totally out of the blue, uh, all the pieces were in place and it was coming, but it has a surprisingly fast acceleration that felt a little bit odd to me. But that's my only tiny gripe in an otherwise immaculate film. Hazel and Dan, you've both mm. seen it. Uh, what have. did you think? Really, really liked it. Uh, Amy absolutely loved it. Thinks it's a masterpiece. Kate Blanchett, phenomenal. She also loved her wardrobe and everything she wore and wanted mm. all of Tar's outfits, mm-hmm. which is beside the point of the film. But it's just another part of the immaculateness of the character, like the way her apartment is designed, what she wears. It's all part of that character. And what I really liked about it is how complete and how real 
she felt as a person. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were reports when it came out of people getting confused and thinking Lydia Tarr was a real person mm-hmm. and this was a biopic. Yeah, they started like wondering what she would have won the Oscar for because she's an EGOT. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, um, yeah. So that kind of just goes to show you how convincing Blanche is. She creates a whole person mm. and it doesn't feel like a performance. It feels like she's just become another person. And like you say, it's a long film, but it doesn't feel it at all. It's almost surprising when it's finished. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it just takes you along with it. I could have watched that opening interview scene for two hours by itself. It was just so compelling. And then as the story goes on, it throws you into the world of classical music and conducting, but you don't need to know who Mahler was or the details of how the first violin chair and the power they hold and how auditions work or things like that. It doesn't expect you to know it, but it expects you to keep up when they're talking about it. But you get the idea of the stakes Mm. within this world very, very quickly. And as Tar's story goes on and things start to come out, what Amy said was, you kind of hate her and admire her at the same time. Mm. She's not good, but she's so interesting that you can't help but want to find out what's going to happen. Yeah. But at the same time, she never makes Tar sympathetic. You're never like, oh, this is such a shame what's happening to her. Mm. She deserves what she gets or does she or does she not i don't know the film asks these questions and you've got to go and see it to answer them Mm. yeah at no point in the film did i ever think i know exactly what's going to happen next Mm. it was constantly surprising me scene by scene frame by frame and actually the bit that you're talking about where something happens and then things kind of unravel very quickly after that there's a theory going around where that moment happens and then everything after that is a dream Mm. People have seen the film, know, but everyone else looks very confused. <laughs> is it a straight drama or is there some more kind of surrealistic elements to it? The trailers and things suggested there was something else going on that... I would say 98% drama, mm-hmm. 2% surrealness. There's a couple of dream sequences, mm. but they don't feel fantastical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of Tar's background is she spent time working with indigenous groups in the Amazon. And you never see that part of her life, but when she's in one of these dream sequences, she revisits that part of the world. So it could feel a little bit weird and surreal, but you know that that's part of her background. The debates around can you separate the art from the artist is something that this film tries to nurture. There's lots of conversations between Tar and some students that she is teaching at Juilliard where they talk about composers and musicians of the past and what has come out since about their personal lives. That's a very intellectual mm. discussion, really, really interesting. Uh, and then it's mirrored by, you know, what happens to Tar. I know where I stand on it, but I think it's just really interesting that these discussions are being had. It's a film that makes you want to talk about it Yeah. Mm-hmm. afterwards. It's always nice when a film comes along like that, and it almost doesn't matter if you love the film or not. You've probably got an opinion on it. Yeah. And not in a I'm right, you're wrong kind of way, Mm -hmm. in a it could be this or it could be that. And it's just a really interesting one to talk about afterwards. It's nice when a film stimulates or inspires you to think about it for ages after the film itself is finished. And at any point, does Tar Uh kill... Denise Crosby in the first season of Star Trek. 
<laughs> that went over my head. That's <laughs> yar, John. Yar. Yar, oh. not tar. <laughs> Sorry. No, but doesn't she die in the tar pit? It's a tar monster. Yeah. Yeah. They're saving that for the sequel. <laughs> tar 2. No, that was a band. Yes. Not a composer. Russian. Anyway, how many Mahler symphonies out of... Tar. Assuming he made 10... Um, would you give Tar? He didn't. I think he did nine. I would give Tar uh, uh, nine out of Tarn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that joke would have been very well received if you hadn't all stolen my thunder before. <laughs> tar for that, Andy. <laughs> You're better than that, Peter. <laughs> no, I'm not. France P. Tar. <laughs> that was a terrific review. I already did that one. Oh, did you? So you stalled it. <laughs> so. My recommendation is a TV series based on a game that also paints another game in a much darker light. Because having seen The Last of Us, <sighs> Toad from Super Mario Brothers is now a terrifying creature <laughs> trapped in a painful living death. <laughs> hey, it's a me, a Joel. <laughs> Not where I thought you were going to go with this recommendation. <laughs> Chris Pratt's in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're not recommending Super Mario Brothers? No, no, I am recommending The Last of Us, the TV show based on the game of the same name. The game came out in 2013, originally on the PlayStation 3. It had a couple of remasters and remakes since, and there was a sequel. And now we have a big-budget HBO TV adaptation of the first game. TV and film adaptations of computer games have had a really rough ride from the original Super Mario Brothers, the Double Dragon movie, the Mortal Kombat movie. There's not really been any great classics. I've heard very good things about Arcane on Netflix, mm -hmm. which is based on, I forget which game. And if you count The Witcher as a game adaptation... Is The Witcher a book originally though I think so but the book was turned into a game and then it was turned into a yeah. series so mm. if that doesn't count yeah you're not looking at many good ones until now but it basically turns out the way to make a really good video game adaptation is just to adapt probably one of the best video games ever made yeah <laughs> that has a strong narrative <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pac-Man the movie was always going to struggle <laughs> The TV series begins in 2003 with Joel and his daughter who are having kind of a normal day. It's Joel's birthday and you follow his daughter around as she gets his birthday present, goes and gets some cakes and so on. And in the background, kind of a little bit like Shaun of the Dead, <laughs> yeah. uh, as this normal day-to-day -day thing is going on, you get like little hints of things going wrong, people going crazy, gradually building up in the background until just the shit hits the fan and Joel and his daughter try and escape a city where a large number of people suddenly appear to have gone insane and started killing each other and trying to bite and eat each other. We jump forward 20 years. Joel is now in one of a few quarantine centres which are the, kind of the last bastions of humanity after this plague, infection, disaster, whatever you want to call it, has destroyed 99% of humanity. Destroyed by what turns out to be mushrooms, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought it? John Hanna thought it in the prologue. Yes. <laughs> the last vestiges of humanity are in these little quarantine zones and are unable to leave in case they become infected. 
whether that's via a bite or an attack from the ravenous hordes of the infected who still lurk outside these zones. If you are bitten, you die very, very quickly, with one exception. A young girl we meet in the first episode, who has been bitten but has not turned, and therefore is probably one of the most valuable people on the planet. Joel is tasked with escorting this character to a medical centre where she may save humanity. The series thereafter is essentially their journey and the relationship between these two characters. So you have a father-daughter dynamic, which is complicated by things that happened in the first episode. As somebody who played and loved the game, I really, really enjoyed it. It's kept very close to the story of the game, but yet made enough changes for it to work, I think, better as a narrative, non-interactive piece. The game, I mean, the game itself is one of the best interactive narrative experiences I think I've ever played. And yet for the show to get all that right, it's a tightrope that it walks very, very well. If you haven't played the game, I think the experience will still be great. Is there anybody here who's seen the show and hasn't played yeah, the game? Um, yeah, three of us, I think. I think I've played the game. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so long ago, I can only vaguely yeah. remember the scenario. No, I uh, hadn't played the game, but listened to your preview episode where we talked about things we're most looking forward to uh, for 2023. This was your number one. I went against every instinct. <laughs> and Following was, John's advice. Yes, exactly. I was really intrigued from the trailers and you know, some of the previews. And so we sat down to watch it. I thought it was excellent. I, I love the prologue. That mm-hmm. really worked so well for me. It dipped a little bit when we went into 2023, but it came back towards the end of the episode. Yeah. I love, love, love Pedro Pascal. Yeah. I think he's yeah. brilliant. Mm-hmm. I'm just excited to see where it goes because I have absolutely no idea. Uh, mm-hmm. I have played the games a few times. Uh, Amy is an obsessive Last of Us gamer. She replays both games every year, and we both thought it was magnificent. Yeah, The very opening of two episodes we've seen up to now are not from the game. One is a prologue prologue in the late 60s. One is a sequence set in Indonesia at the beginning of the outbreak, and they're just both so chilling and so frightening and feel so plausible. It throws you right in. And then the rest of it, you're on the journey with the characters. And you know the Leonardo DiCaprio meme where he's pointing excitedly at a TV screen and going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <gasps> that that was basically Amy every two minutes or something <laughs> came up that she loved from the game going, they did it and they did it so well. And it just keeps going from the music to the characters, to the portrayals of those characters, to key events they just recaptured that feeling perfectly but like john says changed just enough to make it feel like a tv show yeah and not just an adaptation i think that's where the co-showrunners of neil Druckmann, the creator of the game and craig mazin from chernobyl yeah come yeah. in and um, big fan of the game but has had success with tv and knows what works with an hbo series and mm-hmm. the two of them together clearly work it's in the prologues you can really feel the chernobyl influence they yeah. feel very much like that sort yeah. of episode with the sort of way they shot and the starkness yeah. of them he's a perfect show and that feeling of growing dread and things like that you get in the early chernobyl episodes at time of recording we haven't seen episode three but all the reviews i've read and heard say that episode three is a masterpiece and oh, wow. if you thought mm-hmm. it's been good so far mm. it gets even better and 
I'm very excited and a little bit scared to see what's going to happen. I think episode three takes a very small part of the game and expands it into something much bigger. Mm. I am enjoying Pedro Pascal a lot. And he sounds so familiar, whether it's because of being the voice of the Mandalorian or -hmm. because he sounds to me very like Nathan Fillion. That sort of soft Texan accent. Mm. It it has that sort of warmth to it. Really works Mm -hmm. in this otherwise desolate world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, because you've got to have an enormous amount of range to deal with this kind of stuff that you have to deal with in this world. But to have that other side of you who can open up your mind and your heart to others, even though it's been 20 years of hell. You've got to have an actor who's capable of getting that across in the most naturalistic way, and I think they've found that in Pedro Pascal. The relationship mm. between him and Ellie, who is Bill and Ramsey in this yep. version, is already you know very reminiscent of the game, but spot on. If you wonder where you recognise her from, she's the young girl in Game of Thrones who's basically put in charge at the age of mm-hmm. nine or something of yeah. running an entire country. Yeah. Ian Mayer and maybe you as well, Andy, were having a conversation about this because uh, I don't think any of us has warmed to Bella Ramsey's character just yet. And at the moment, she feels like she's playing a certain version of that character from Game of Thrones, which is very high status, very angry, very yelly at mm-hmm. the world. And I'm excited to see her develop more of a range of emotions because at the moment, she's just all fire, all anger. Yeah. And Teenager. I need to see, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, very true. Yeah. I need to see a different side of her. She, she's got good reason reason to be angry of course, um, so yeah. it's not like i'm saying oh that's badly written character or anything but we haven't seen anything likable from her yet and yeah. i'm sure she will develop but yeah. also with pedro pascal's character I'm, I'm not yet really attached to him i'm sure it's coming but mm. at the moment i like it but it hasn't really grabbed me yet the production design is fantastic mm-hmm. i love yeah. the design of the, yeah. uh, the monsters and such and some really wonderful moments of suspense yeah. it's got a lot going for it and i think it's going to become great but i'm not on the trolley yet and after two episodes the um overwhelmingly massive this is the best thing i've ever seen reaction sorry it does make me (laughs) (laughs) really i mean two episodes we'll we'll see how it goes but uh, it could get there not there yet for me Mm. um i think the way bella ramsey's portraying ellie is quite authentic to the ellie at this stage in the game and she is very much like that and I think the way her character develops is in the relationship to Joel and vice versa. As they get to know each other better, you get to know both of them better. So it will develop. Yeah. Um, quite how they do that, how long it'll take, how many episodes into that mm. it'll be. But there are key events that are coming up in the story that should fill the rest of that in. Yeah. It's, what's interesting is you're kind of reassured in a way that you were not with The Walking Dead. I got so sick of The Walking Dead by the end of it. I, I got to the end of The Walking Dead. I you. didn't. I got I think, yeah. I think, yeah. Are you excited for the uh, Negan spin-off? Not going to watch them. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be bothered. <laughs> yeah. I, I've watched all 19 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, yeah. but I'm done with The Walking Dead. <laughs> I, I would say if you are fed up with The Walking Dead, I'd give this a try, because yeah. they are two very different things, and it, it has heard, much more yeah. enjoyment to it than The Walking Dead was just a trudge. But we know it's got an... Those who know the game know it's got a satisfying narrative and conclusion. Yeah. I would not have known the end of The Walking Dead was the end of The Walking Dead <laughs> if I hadn't been told beforehand it was the last episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how many episodes is this season? So it's nine episodes which cover the entirety of the first game. It's already been picked up for season two. Two and done? I don't know if it's two and done because the second game is a lot bigger. I, I can imagine the second game being spread across two seasons. I think it might be a free and done. 
I've heard a lot of people, eh, zombies, border zombies. The zombies aren't the main thing in it, yeah. really. It's much more about the relationships between the people and really the most of the antagonists are people rather than yeah. faceless monsters. Some of it remind me of A Quiet Place. Mm. So mm-hmm. if you enjoy that sort of thing and hate The Walking yeah. Dead, give it a yeah. try. You do have to be quiet if a clicker is around the corner. Mm. Yeah. They're creepy They're guys. horrible. Oh, just you just you wait, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how many of us? You know, so far it's a 10. It's perfect. I'm absolutely loving wow. it. Yeah. I mean, that's mm-hmm. a, I mean, it's a strong statement to make after two episodes. You've but never little... given that to a, a decent thing before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don's <laughs> average score is four. <laughs> Unless they fuck it up massively, which mm. I, I'm confident they won't. It's, it's so good. It's the best game adaptation. Yeah. So uh, from... That too? <laughs> Coherent as usual. Peter, what have you got for us? I'd like to recommend Slow Horses on Apple TV. It's a, this is why never take Peter's gambling tips. <laughs> <laughs> it's a spy thriller. But unlike James Bond or Jack Ryan, it deals in the really unglamorous side of espionage. It's a gritty and grimy view of how the intelligence service works when it's a regular job. And it reminded me a little of John le Carre's George Smiley novels. Gary Oldman plays Jackson Lamb, a bitter and washed-out MI5 agent who's placed in charge of Slough House, a run-down building where they send spies who fuck up or piss off the establishment in some way, which he's done multiple times himself. They're supposed to handle the dull, paper-pushing tasks that no one wants, and yet they always seem to end up involved in big cases somehow. At first, Lamb seems to relish making everyone's life as bad as his own, but occasionally he reveals little cracks in his outer shell that reveal he's trying to protect those who work for him, and you start to like the character and love the character as you get into the series. The nominal hero is played by Jack Loudon, the closest thing to an action hero in the series. He's sent to Slough House after screwing up a live training exercise which would have taken out half of Stansted Airport. His dad's a retired senior spy, played by Jonathan Price, who was the boss of the present chief of MI5, placed by Kristen Scott Thomas. Everyone in the show is really good, really fun, really engaging. In the first season, they try to rescue a British Asian man who's grabbed by a far-right group who plan to cut his head off live on the internet. And in the second, they have to stop a bomb headed for London. The scripts are great, truthful and funny, and you really enjoy spending time with the team as they each try to make the best of the cards they've been dealt. Despite the downbeat beginning, you get drawn into the plot and the characters. Each series based on one of six novels by Mick Heron. Two seasons were released last year, around nine months apart, and filming is already underway on a season three. We went straight from binging the first series into binging the second, which we never do normally. So you can get some idea of how much we enjoyed it. Uh, and you can catch it on Apple TV+. Plus. Yes, it is on my Apple TV Plus watch list. As soon as I finish Severance, Slow Horses is next, because I've heard nothing but good things. Oh, good. It's yeah. really nice that Jack Loudon's getting more leading roles, because I've mostly seen him in smaller performances like Dunkirk or Fighting With My Family, and mm-hmm. he's always really, really good. He's great in this. He, he got a lead in Benediction last year when he played Secret Sassoon, but to be the lead in a big prestige TV show, does he live up to like being a leading man? Now he's got the chance. Absolutely. He yeah. looks right. He plays the part. You do also enjoy Gary Oldman, but he's a bit more in the background. Is he like the M figure? 
No, he's more a sort of curmudgeonly boss. Okay. <laughs> That's one way of looking at him. I mean, there are more M-like figures, and there's also a sort of Malfoyish character as well who thwarts them at every turn. <laughs> but yeah, it's really good. It's really good fun, and I think you'll enjoy it. Does it feel like it's got something different about it from other spy thrillers? Like, the reason I ask mm-hmm. is we started watching Treason starring Charlie Cox on Netflix. Right. And the, f- the first episode was, it was fine, but we were just like, I haven't felt like I've watched anything new. This is just mm-hmm. the same old MI5 kind of things trotted out. Is it, does it feel like it's different to things that you've seen before? I think so. In a way, it feels less appealing because it's this sort of slightly downbeat sort of thing. But then mm-hmm. you warm to it so much more because that gives it a reality, okay. which is kind of good. It's kind of not like an action-packed glitz and glam world mm. of spies Although, sort of thing. arguably, it does start a bit like that with the thing in Stansted that mm-hmm. I mentioned. That plays like it's going to be this action-adventure thing. And it, it's not really. Yeah. It, it kind of gets back to there at the end. But, yeah, I, th- I think it's really great. I What's think you'll enjoy it. What's um, the reason behind the title, Slow Horses? Does that get explained? Well, that's Slough House. Slough House, Slough House. And Slough the house. idea is that the place is so dismal it might as well be in Slough. It's not actually in Slough. Oh, okay. MI5 itself is in this wonderful modern building where everything's slick and, you know, a bit more spy. Mm. And yet here it's like they rented a place around the corner. I'd like to apologise to our slough listeners. Slough. <laughs> Lovingly <laughs> listeners. Right. <laughs> yeah, but you just basically said it's a shithole. I didn't. That's what they said. <laughs> Says yeah. the person it's the, who is... the MI5 establishment mm-hmm. saying it's a shithole, yeah. John. Uh-huh. Does that mean you're a spy? Are you working for MI5 right now? I am. I knew it. John would be the shittest spy, which means he would be a great spy. Yes, a triple <laughs> bluff. <laughs> I have one other casting question. I have seen publicity photos when season one came out. Is Olivia Cook in Slow Horses? She is, yes. Is that right? Yes. Because that automatically makes it like 20% better. Because she's brilliant and everything. So I will, I will definitely be watching. But season two, as good as season one, it carries on the momentum. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, I think so. And now that you've warmed and got into the characters as well, even more so. Mm-hmm. How slow out of ten? <laughs> Eight and a half. <laughs> yes, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't even an effect. No. That was live. <laughs> Hazel, what have you got? Okay. Fingers home. So this is a story of how something finds you when you're not looking for it. Or to be more precise, when you're looking for something else entirely. <laughs> is it is it the new Hellraiser film? <laughs> oh, is it a puzzle box? It's never going to be the new Hellraiser film. Okay. The hell no film. It was a Sunday night. I just dropped my husband off at the airport and I would be alone for a week and I was looking for some entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> so many stories start that way. <laughs> Scrolling through the streaming channels, I came across a TV show called This Is Us. Oh, cool, I decried. That's the post-apocalyptic zombie thing. (laughs) (laughs) There are such good things about. Great, I'll put that on. Didn't think that Mandy Moore was in it, but, you know, she might have been singing on the soundtrack. I put it on and there were no zombies. There were no head explosions. What I found instead was an absorbing TV drama that I have absolutely fallen in love with. This is us. Not to be confused with The Last of Us, because I'm sure there are millions out there who have made the same mistake. Uh, I'm not. <laughs> Imagine making it the other way and settling down with your nan for a heartwarming <laughs> drama. <laughs> this Is Us follows a family during key moments of their lives. In the first episode, we meet three people who all turn 36 on the very same day. 
They are Kate, played by Chrissy Metz, Kevin, played by Justin Hartley, and Randall, played by Sterling K. Brown. They are brothers and sister. Also in the first episode, we meet Jack, played by Milo Ventimiglia, and Rebecca, played by Mandy Moore. Rebecca is heavily pregnant with triplets. The first episode follows her giving birth to Kevin and then Kate. Tragically, the third baby dies in childbirth. They always imagined that they would be parents to triplets and stricken by grief and following an emotional conversation with their doctor, they discover Randall lying in a cot next to Kevin and Kate in the baby ward. Apparently he'd been dropped off anonymously at a fire station earlier that day, the same day he was born, and a firefighter had brought them here to be cared for. So the series then follows the three children in the present, age 36, and continually flashes back to their lives growing up. So you get to see Jack and Rebecca's lives as well, becoming parents. Although the episodes don't follow a linear structure, you know, we can start the episode in the 1980s, but then we transition to the present and then, you know, keep going back and forth. There is always a a running storyline in each episode, which both of the timelines follow. And the story is about what happened in the past and how it had an impact on the present. So as we watch the characters juggle their current lives, so Kevin is a struggling actor. Kate meets the love of her life in Toby, who is amazing. She's also battling weight issues. Randall has a seemingly perfect life with a great family and a great job. And he's dealing with a mental health issue, which as a viewer, you get more and more insight into. I can't begin to describe how much I love this series. And the great thing is that I'm still relatively at the beginning of this journey. So I'm about halfway through season two and there's 18 episodes a season and six seasons altogether. I don't think there's an episode yet that I haven't cried during it. It hits all of the emotions. You care so much about the characters, which is not easy to do in an ensemble piece like this. Some of the characters on paper aren't all that likable, especially Kevin. But there's just a tremendous warmth in their connections with each other, which are quite complicated. I also want to call out Ron Cephas Jones' performance. So he is the father of Jasmine Cephas Jones. That's Peggy from Hamilton. Yeah, I needed to be told. And, and Mariah Reynolds in Act 2, obviously. Yeah. But you knew that. So he plays William, who is Randall's birth father. Randall has spent most of his adult life trying to find him. And in the first episode, we see him finding him. It is a towering performance. He's one of those like reactive actors. So like every word that is spoken to him, you see that word on his face. And then that translates into the way that he responds. It's, I don't know, like a better way to describe it other than that. It's, it's incredible. And it's probably, he's probably my favorite thing about this series. And there's a lot to, to choose from. So yeah, all six seasons are available now on Disney Plus and Prime, I think. Um, so if you haven't seen This Is Us yet, you should start now and be prepared to invest all of your emotions. Yeah, it was a huge hit when it came out. It had... Had lots of Emmy wins. I think Sterling yeah. K. Brown won yeah. a couple of times. Have you got Chrissy f- Metz as well, I think. Yeah. Have you got a favourite character? Is there anyone that stands out particularly that you relate to or you like more mm. than the rest of them? Or Yeah, no, I didn't think about that. Uh, William is my favourite character, I think. Um, but I, I really like Randall as well. I think I probably relate to him the most. 
Although I wasn't abandoned as a baby, so that's <laughs> no, that's probably not the right thing to say. Um, <laughs> as the series goes on, more and more gets revealed about each character's backgrounds and what happened to them at various stages of their lives, which makes me think, oh no, that character's my favourite now. So how do they make use of the device where they like tackle similar problems or themes in one episode, but it's um, in different time periods? Yeah. Do you have a thing where maybe there's a character worried about money and then you also see their parents in the past worrying about money? And Yeah, it's like building a new house and you see Rebecca and Jack building their house. And yeah, so it's either linear examples like that or just emotions dealing with loss, but maybe in different ways. So there's often a contrast, is there? Or does it often say that the children reflect the parents and they walk in the, the same footsteps and tackle things the same way or no it's more the children have been affected by the actions of the parents and they might choose a sa- the same path or they might choose a different path because of that i'm trying to dance around it because of spoilers but the whole thing is about the impact of certain events on their childhood one huge one but there's also lots and lots and lots of smaller ones like competitiveness all that kind of thing and having family unit around you versus someone like Jack who never did. He had an abusive father. Mm. So you dropped Andy off at the airport and started watching this that night. How much of the season and a half did you get through before he returned? I've seen a lot less since he came back. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, I believe I watched the whole of the first season and maybe a little bit of the second one before he came back. And how long was he away? Five days. Four. (laughs) felt like longer (laughs) can go away again if you need me to (laughs) that'll be great (laughs) would you have coped having to wait a week for each new episode yeah i do i love the fact that i can just binge it i really do um it's one of my favorite things in life is just to fall head of his heels in love with a tv show that's how i've been my whole life and and it's rare, but when I find it, it, it really does kind of affect me quite a lot. So this is in the pantheon with West Wing and the other favourite shows. Is uh, it going to stay there or I ho- has I it got some so. work to do? It's definitely got some work to do. From what I've seen, the reviews talk about it doesn't dip. So the bit where the fungus starts to take over is really going to hit hard. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Like, yeah. We have to eat each other. <laughs> You'd think they'd get round to it by six seasons, though. <laughs> it's all just a really long prequel series to The Last yeah. of Us. <laughs> God. Spoilers. I would pay to see a crossover. This is The Last of Us crossover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I guess how many triplets out of... How many triplets in the spare? How many sets of three sets of triplets, triplets. and one spare out of ten? Have you been listening to what <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> How many abandoned babies out of 10? Oh, that's better. Oh, yes. Great. <laughs> oh, God. How many abandoned babies out of 10 <laughs> on the basis that any that you don't pick don't get... Survive. Don't, <laughs> don't get some nice parents and instead have to live in a fire station. How many more Mandy Moores out of <laughs> 10? Um, I'm gonna... Did you like it? Yeah, it was really good. All right, there you go. <laughs> Thank you.
That is all for this episode of Nerdfest. Thank you very much for listening. If you would like to support us, you can do so by subscribing and also by leaving us a lovely glowing five-star review. In return, you will be offered a reward, so feel free to use whatever John is about to say next as a bribe for doing the right thing. John, over to you. I'm going to come round and show you some home movies I made as a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, you've been listening to... A man who is writing an autobiographical film called Gary Podcast Man. (laughs) (laughs) A man who is completely out of tarpons. A man who is deep undercover at this very moment. A fabled man. (laughs) (laughs) And a woman who would love to see Mandy Moore star in a zombie show. Let's make this happen, people. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. That was terrific. Well done, everyone. Third time we've used Tarifik. (laughs) Get some new material. You're going to see Groundhog Day, aren't you, (laughs) Jamie? Yeah, I hear there's a new stage version. (laughs) I hear it's Tarifik.